welcome to this, the fifth episode in the 10-part series, the IPA's Great Books of Literature podcast. My name is John Roscombe, and I am the Executive Director of the Institute of Public Affairs. In this series, Andrew Bolt and I talk about 10 of the great books of literature with our compere James Bolt, the host of the IPA's Young IPA podcast. So far in this series, we have talked about Bleak House, The Leopard, Wuthering Heights, and Zorba the Greek. In this, our fifth episode, we will be discussing Don Quixote by Miguel de Cervantes. In Don Quixote, Cervantes does more than simply tell funny, engaging and warm stories about a knight and his faithful squire. Below the surface of these stories is a deep psychological analysis of what it means to pursue our life's goals. Don Quixote has entered our culture through concepts such as tilting at windmills, now part of our everyday speech. Cervantes is also part of our culture because it has been justifiably said that 400 years ago he invented in Don Quixote the novel by creating the concept of a story written by a writer which is then read and enjoyed by us as readers. If you like this podcast, don't forget to subscribe and leave a rating on iTunes. I will now hand over to James Bolt for a plot summary. Don Quixote was written by Miguel de Cervantes, with part one published in 1605 and part two published in 1615. It is considered to be the first novel and one of the best to have ever been written. The story follows Don Quixote, who reads so many books of chivalric knights and romance that he loses sense of reality and starts to believe that he is living out his own knightly story. After a disastrous first adventure, he recruits a local farmer, Sancho Panza, as his squire after promising him a governorship at the end of their adventure. Sancho serves as a straight man to Don Quixote's dreamlike naivety. The two set out across Spain pursuing adventure and heroism, but usually end up well short of both. The book is famous for its themes and styles well ahead of its times. Cervantes employs modern conventions such as breaking the fourth wall, and the book serves as a meditation on the concept of reality as Quixote descends into his fantasy. The book was an instant success, and today the novel has sold 500 million copies worldwide. The impact of the book can be seen in direct references to Don Quixote in classics ranging from The Three Musketeers to The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. So I think we want to start with uh, how we reached including this book in the 10 great books of literature. Uh, gentlemen, how did we come to that one? Well, I just uh, decided to pick it because it's one of the books, very few books on John's to-do list that I hadn't actually read. And I thought, I'll do something different. I'll read a book I haven't yet read. And am I glad to have done so? And I said to Andrew when we were talking about our 10 books that I had read part one, uh, I think when I was at university, and that given that th this podcast is part of the IPA's Foundations of Western Civilization program, we should probably do the book that most people say is uh, the first novel in the Western tradition. Um, the greatest say some. So the greatest say some and... Uh, Wasn't there the, a poll of uh, writers that nominated this? There was the a Norwegian poll. I think they, they surveyed 50 writers and uh, uh, Don Quixote came out number one uh, and uh, Proust was number two. So I'm, I'm glad we're not discussing Proust. But this is an incredible novel. I rang Andrew through the week and I said, Andrew, it's taken me 700 pages to work out what this book is about, but I am so glad that I have. It's incredible. Talking about what people and looking at what people have said about it, uh, this had an influence on Dostoevsky. Freud learned Spanish to, to read the book 
Henry um, Fielding was inspired by it. It is it is wonderful. But then again, you get a Virginia Woolf who says it's like quicksand. Auden said um, no one's ever read the whole thing, um, but we've both read the whole thing. We've read the thousand pages, and it was well worth every well, moment. Well, to, to listeners that don't know it or only know of uh, Don Quixote, uh, the word quixotic, uh, meaning uh, going on a fool's quest, um, or uh, know only of the image of the knight with the uh, fat guy behind him, Sancho Panza, on a donkey. Um, this is a book that is famous for tilting at windmills. That's the expression that comes from this book. Uh, Don Quixote tilting at a windmill thinking they're a giant. You read it for incident and come away th- being amazed by insight. It is a very easy book to uh, underestimate that you read the various pratfalls of Don Quixote, who's gone mad from reading too much chivalric literature. Um, But in fact, it is a brilliant work that uh, has parodies, as modern Spanish societies, insight into human behaviour. It is so rich with so many different byways and highways that we could not possibly, in the hour that we have, discuss it all. But shall we first start, before we get into a more extended plot summary... By talking about Cervantes himself, because he surely uh, must be the most extraordinary writer that's ever been. Just before we do, though, so you say that this has had such an influence on authors, mm. and I know we want to get into themes later, but just for people that haven't read it, so what is it? The, what are these insights in, in a short form? Of it, well, what are these insights that make authors constantly come back to this I book? I think it's because it's a writer's book about writing. It's not just about a man who went mad from reading too much. Um It's also a book about writing, a parody of some popular Spanish writers at the time, and a whole genre of literature that for some 200 years had exercised tremendous uh, hold on the European imagination. The Roland, uh, Orlando Furioso is another version of Roland's story, the epics of Charlemagne, a whole genre of of knightly literature and jousting and knights errant and all that. And Don Quixote has read read all this in his library, gone mad from this idea, and wants to bring it back in in late 16th century Spain or early 17th by the time the uh, part two was written. And he goes on this fool's quest. Um, But what I think writers love about it is that Throughout, there are actually three characters. There's Quixote, there's uh, Sancho Panza, his peasant uh, uh, servant and who becomes a friend. But there's also the narrator who inserts himself every now and then and talks jokingly about, uh, for instance, between part one and part two, uh, it's a span of 10 years. Uh, Part one was instantly a bestseller. It was in Britain within a couple of years translated. It was instant. At 58... Kyoto has been a, f- a failure, uh, sorry, Cervantes has been a failure all his life as a writer, suddenly becomes world famous. And uh, then some other guy knocks off his idea and writes the sequel to <laughs> part one, um, which has Kyoto confined to a madhouse. So part two, um, Cervantes thinks, I'd better get some money here, and he's so outraged. Part two, he uh, he m- mentions that Kyoto uh, and uh, and Panza uh, are, are going on another round of adventures, and they keep bumping into people who've read part one. <laughs> and then some that read the fake part two by someone else, which drives Don Quixote mad. He actually sits down the guy that uh, who says he's read part two, and, the, uh, and Don Quixote must surely be mad. And he said, I want you to write a, a statement, no <laughs> witness by a lawyer, to say... 
that uh, you've now met the real Don Quixote. And the, the other part two is, is, is a croc. So he keeps coming in there about how uh, Cervantes, how we discovered allegedly these translations of the uh, story of, um, of Don Quixote. And it's just brilliant. This, this idea of the writer talking about writing and, and in theatre, of course, breaking down the fourth wall, it's called speaking directly to the reader is very modern and there were precursors to it um, before Don Quixote but it was really in Don Quixote that you don't just have this phenomena but then you have an entire discussion and you can understand how people argue that Don Quixote gave rise to modernity because there's a discussion about what is real and what is not real and so you have the writer telling the reader you are reading a book that I have made up but you also suspend disbelief thinking it could be real. And so you have this entire theme about writing, and to use a, a technical literary term, it's called metafiction, being um, uh, reflecting on the process of writing itself. Uh, but then you have that process uh, transmuted to uh, Don Quixote and his ideas of reality. So um, as Andrew's alluded to, you know, sadly, um, the book is well known and it's nice that it's well known for the famous incident of uh, tilting at the windmills, but that represents um, reality versus illusion. And then throughout the book, especially in the second part, you have uh, Cervantes almost um, poking fun at the, at the readers and then you have uh, Don Quixote talking about himself as a character in the novel and then uh given that he is allegedly mad but is he mad or is he not we'll talk about that um gives you an insight into how as a writer um you could really admire and learn from this book so it's not just the stories and some of the stories and the tales some are better than others um as people say sometimes cervantes sentences do go for about half a page um sometimes he loses track sometimes he loses the point but then he talks about losing the point um and then okay, but i just want to see the point don't forget in part look we'll get to the plot in a second because i feel i'm uh, we're, we're stringing people on here but uh in part one uh, he makes this couple of mistakes for instance, when Don Quixote goes and frees the galley slaves, uh, that's one of his nightly adventures. He meets a bunch of people on the road who are galley slaves, and he he uh, he frees them. He assaults the the uh, the, the the army people or um, uh, the Holy Brotherhood. It's the sort of paramilitary force that uh, maintains peace. He he assaults them and frees the slaves, who promptly bash him up. All his adventures ended up basically with him being bashed up or vomiting his guts out or something. It's just so... Sp or trampled by a herd of cattle Which or trampled by a herd century, of Which in the 17th century probably was absolutely hilarious. I'm not sure I find it quite so funny now. Well, but it's true because... Yeah, it, well, it is very pessimistic. Bits of it have times, You know, like uh, they vomit on each other at one stage. But that, I think, belies the fact... I mean, this is Renaissance literature. We've got a, a late Renaissance in a sense. But we've got to acknowledge that the Renaissance was everything, you know, where... From the low to the high, which is one of the glories of this book, is so elevated but in touch with the peasant as well. And that's what's uh, driven its great success. But um, he, he makes some mistakes in part one, uh, like when uh, the, they get bashed up by the people they've freed, uh, one of them steals Sancho Panza's donkey, which then 
but that's not mentioned in part one, which Savantes forgot to put that in. And then at the uh, and then the donkey miraculously reappears without explanation later in the story. So when it comes to part two, Cervantes notes this and says, well, people have blamed the forgetfulness of the author. I blame the printer. <laughs> so there's this constant breaking down the fourth wall, but it's that playing with the audience and we're really all and, in and, on the and joke. And almost manipulating um, the audience, but then letting you in on the joke and... Um, uh, in the second part of of the book, Cervantes even talks about the famous famous liars paradox. The idea that the statement "this is false" um, can be both true and false at the same time, and you have Sancho examining what this means. He's my so, master man, and and, and then, exactly, and then you you have this idea. Again, very modern that we take for granted now, but it's four hundred years old. The idea that something can be true and false at the same time, well, and you and you and you don't know, and the two coexist together. And so Andrew mentioned the idea of the Renaissance. So you have, uh, and this is called the first part is certainly called a Renaissance book. So the Renaissance uh, gives us the idea of the individual and their individuality. The Renaissance also gives us an idea leading into the Enlightenment of what can we know? And Cervantes has, has written a thousand pages saying, you might not know what you think you know. Well, that's so interesting. Look, I, I feel we've really got to plunge into Cervantes. So we'll, we'll, go, and, we'll, and, we'll, and we'll come plot. back to that. We'll, so, we'll, we'll get into his But just get one, into his one aside on, on that very point, because he sees a windmill as giants. He sees a herd of sheep as an army, which he then charges and again falls over and gets bashed up. He sees uh, a barber's basin, uh, just a, a basin, as the famous helmet of a uh, one of the, these knights of the uh, chivalric literature, and he, he charges the barber and, and, and grabs it, and, and then wears the the, barb, the, the basin. And, and Sancho Panza uh, is, keeps thinking, are you, are you crazy? That's just the barber's basin. And at one stage... Um, Don Quixote turns to him and says, if I think it's so, it is so. And what's really interesting is... That's the key to the book. And, well, what is fascinating is that almost the very same time that he was writing part one, and this is at the very end and the beginning, uh, very end of the 16th century, beginning of the 17th, um, Shakespeare was writing Hamlet. We're talking about a time when these two giants of literature, Shakespeare and Cervantes, were working at the same time. Shakespeare with enormous success in his lifetime, uh, Cervantes with almost total failure until the very end. Shakespeare at the same time was writing Hamlet, which contains the line, there is neither heaven nor hell, but thinking makes it so, which is not quite uh, the same sentiment, but, but how you think about something influences how you perceive it. It's fascinating those two people come at the same time. I said this was a Renaissance book, and that's because it's a revolting part against all the chivalric literature where the knights are always grand, where they never eat, they never go to the toilet, they never fall asleep, they never die in bed. Uh, everything's grand and, and... They never vomit on their squire. They never vomit on their squire. And this is a revolt against it because it starts off... Um, now, with, before we do that, I just want to come back... There is a burning of the books. But before we do that, I, you mentioned Shakespeare and Hamlet. Um, and it would be remiss if we didn't acknowledge, of course, that Harold Bloom... The great critic said there are really only two great authors. It is Shakespeare and Hamlet and it is Cervantes and Don Quixote. I'm prepared to believe that, that although that, Harold Bloom did make a lot of big statements. Yeah, but I'll, I'll, I will go with this this statement because Harold Bloom... Um, the Paul Kelly is, of literature. Is, ...is on about... I'll let that one go. 
is, is on about how do we know ourselves? And, yes, and, all right. And this comes to how, well, well, how do, we do we know ve- ourselves? More, I think, to uh, how we invest meaning in our lives. Let's start with Cervantes so we'll, we'll, before, we'll because otherwise, honestly, uh, look, I apologise to those listening, but as you can tell, this is a book with so many things. It contains multitudes. And, and, and again, before, And you can so easily get... You can be, you can talk about it for before we go weeks. into before we go Cervantes be, before we go into Cervantes one last no thing. no 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 we no, can't. no Andrew we we we're going to just on that we're going to spend an hour talking we've probably already spend about fifteen minutes on that's on the Don point Keogh. we got distracted um, uh, there's some wonderful books uh, about uh, Cervantes and about Don Quixote uh, before we go further I just want to um, make reference to something that I hope listeners um, do look up themselves. You can read lots of great books about Cervantes or you can get onto the internet and you can Google uh, Cervantes and Professor Roberto Echevera at Yale University and free of charge on the web are 24 lectures, each of one hour. And they are brilliant. So um, after you've had one hour of uh, Andrew James and I talking about Don Quixote, there's 24 hours of the most incredible, informed, interesting, engaged um, discussion on Don Quixote. So if, we, uh, well, if, we, if we've whetted your appetite, I, I agree. Um, it'll, it'll take you less time to read the book than to watch those lectures. But after you've finished with Jordan Peterson and his Bible series, Google it. It's incredible. Well, the fact that Sorry, a, an erudite <laughs> uh, scholar can spend uh, 24 hours of unflagging interest. Unflagging. Uh, in one book, it tells you how much Sorry, there is in Cervantes. it. Sorry, Let's start with <laughs> Cervantes. He is surely one of the most astonishing writers ever. Uh, his life history is just amazing. Um, Don Quixote is, in fact, at his bestseller at 58 years old. So it's hope for then, us all. It is hope for <laughs> us all. I am 58. Where's mine? Um, he was born in 1547. Uh, his father, I think, was a barber surgeon. We know a bit more about him than we do about Shakespeare, but still there are big gaps. Got some schooling, maybe the Jesuits, people believe, went to some sort of uh, higher schooling. For some mysterious reason, he seemed to have been exiled from Spain. So he, he belongs to the... Maybe a duel or a fight who knows, or something. Who knows? So lower middle class, probably, you'd probably call him in contemporary terms. And, uh, and this is uh, when Spain, of course, was great. Uh, or just coming off its greatness, the great colonial possessions uh, in, in the Americas, etc. And he went to serve in Rome for a cardinal, spent six years in Italy in all. After a year or two, he went to fight for the Spanish regiments in Naples, because the Habsburgs, of course, were everywhere. Um, he fought in the Great Battle of Lepanto, which is goes down in history as a great naval battle, where uh, the Ottoman Empire was, for for the first time, shown to be not invincible. Uh, He was very brave. Cervantes, all his life, he was brave. Uh, He fought, imagine they fought with galleys, and the soldiers would stand on a gangplank and charge over a gangplank, risking almost certain death or drowning, right? You imagine storming a ship with everyone firing at you on a little gangplank. Uh, He was one of the first on there. He got three wounds to the front of his body, he uh, reminds people, and lost the use of his left hand, uh, but was given lots of certificates of appreciation of his valour. And for the rest of his life, he made a point of the valour he had. Unfortunately, those certificates told against him because they were signed by such 
noble people that when he and his brother were captured by uh, Muslim pirates and taken to slavery in Algiers, they thought, hello, with letters like this, this man must be worth a lot of money. So they held him for ransom at such a price that his family could not possibly afford it. They had enough for one of either him or his brother. How do you pick? <laughs> Cervantes picked the brother. And this is Cervantes, really. He not only did that, he was a ringleader in about at least four escapes, risking, he was kept in captivity for the ransom, but loaded with chains, faced punishment, had the noose put around his neck after one uh, failed coup. Another failed coup, uh, one of the others was impaled on a spike. Uh, he was inc- insanely brave. But he must have had something in him because the guy keeping him captive threatened to kill him, sentenced him to death a couple of times and then relented. Finally, he got ransomed by uh, religious orders, went to Spain. The rest of his, most of the rest of his life was in failure. He tried his hand as a writer, failed for two decades. Uh, decided wrote to lots of plays, not many of which were published, made no money from being a playwright, correct. made no money from being a poet. Collected money, uh, then turned to collecting money for the uh, government for the that didn't Armada. Work out. <laughs> for the Spanish Armada certainly didn't work out. Uh, then became a tax collector, which is a very lowly thing. That going didn't around work out either. Yeah, but that, in a sense, because tax collectors then you had to move around. He saw a lot of Spain. Lot, saw a lot of Spain, saw a lot of the inns. There are a lot of inns in the book. Uh, got jailed for a couple of times for alleged... Uh, problems in his bookkeeping. Which probably wasn't his fault. He de- he uh, deposited some of the, the tax receipts with a, a, a banker that was fraudulent. Um, so he was in jail unjustly. And at 58, finally, he produces part one. Part one uh, of Don Quixote. Uh, it's an immense success, uh, but he's, again, <laughs> story of his life, he gets studded by the printer. Ten years later, he writes part and two. And there are lots of copies. Hmm? And there were there were lots of uh, copies part, made of, of part one, so he didn't even get the royalties. Um, it was hugely successful, but as Andrew said, he didn't make any money out of it. And he'd written previous books again, which were pretty successful, which he'd made no money out of. So it's a very he knows everything about life, writing and arms. And he has a fact, difficult family. A difficult family. <laughs> he took lovers, a wife that he apparently illegitimate daughter, illegitimate daughter. The whole thing. Fifty eight. Then so seen the world up, down, the sideways. And you can tell his voice coming through this. It's a bit cynical. I mean, we mentioned cynical. the re- Renaissance, right? The idea of the human above the spiritual. That, and, and that you think of Michelangelo and all that. You know, the, the human form comes through. That, that's a whole Renaissance, you know, away with this mystical and let's talk about the human, Machiavelli. You just think of it oh, all. I exist. I exist. And, and Cervantes represents that. There's a cynical... Look at the human kind of thing, and and that's the problem that he has with the chivalric literature. That, like I say, the, the knights never seem to eat or defecate or anything. But uh, uh, Don Quixote he sure makes does. up for that. He <laughs> makes up for that. But then he writes part two to cash in on the fame. He's been supported near the end of his life by nobles, and then one year after part two, he dies unlucky to the last. Uh, it's an amazing life, and I think it informs this book. And he produced a, a, a classic. He produced a classic. What about the book itself? I guess uh, having we've got to give a bit of a plot summary. It's, the book has had part one is two Sallies. Don Quixote goes mad from reading. The first Sally, last, uh, he, he goes out in the world. He uh, makes a suit of armour, finds that it lacks a visor, so he makes one of cardboard, tests it, smashes, of course. So he makes another and doesn't test it because he doesn't want to know that it's no good. And he goes out in the world. 
It lasts only two days. He's on his own at this stage. He's made a night by an innkeeper that's sick of him standing guard outside a uh, watering trough and beating off the muleteers trying to use it. So he says, I'll make you a night. The next day, he challenges merchants to declare his Dulcinea, the most beautiful woman they've ever seen. He's only seen Dulcinea out of the side of his eye for four times, maybe, he thinks. And he thinks Dulcinea may not have even seen him. She's actually a peasant girl uh, that he elevates to, because every night he's someone he loves. And to talk about Dulcinea for a moment, there's a question as to whether Dulcinea even exists. And so we have uh, this whole quest for something that may not even exist. Although well, Sancho Panza it, thinks it's this peasant th- girl he knows is as strong as a horse. <laughs> it, could, it, 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 it could be. And then and then this comes back into, well, well, the purpose of life, the purpose of existence, and, and what is Don Quixote trying to do? He is questing for something that may be a figment of his imagination. But then in the second part, we have a discussion about, well, even if it is a figment of my imagination... I'm happy pursuing this. Well, this Sorry. is the whole thing. Sorry, this is the whole thing. <laughs> he discovers the great cause, cause of his life is to bring back chivalry and knighthood and the knight errant. And the moment, the moment that part two, he starts to get a little, a few doubts, you know, about whether he's actually seeing things right. And the moment that he uh, discovers that he was mad and that his quest was fake, he dies. And it's like he's got meaning of his life and then he dies virtually of a broken heart. There's no meaning. And I find that so interesting. I mean, there's modern parallels here because you think uh, people tilting at the global warming thing, you take that away from them, they won't exist. People thinking they're fighting fascism, you take that away, they've got no cause. I think that's amazing. But his cause is noble. But let's just but, but do ju- and, and just plot. before he dies, and he, and, he, and he dies we're, at we're the jumping end of the book. We, we are jumping ahead and giving away the fact that he dies, but... One of the points of the book is: Was he happy? Was he happier living a lie? He was. What was he happier living in his fantasy world, doing what he thought was the right thing? Even though every time uh, it seems to go sour. So, part one: the first Sally goes off for two days, made an innkeeper, um, uh, then challenges people, uh, merchants, startled merchants coming along the road. You must declare Dulcinea the most beautiful woman you've ever seen, even though they've never seen it. Uh, and then he charges them on Dulcinea, on, on Rosinante, who's a, a horse that uh, can't walk faster than a trot. <laughs> and, and not for the first time, uh, uh, the, the horse falls over. And, the uh, horse falls over a lot. A lot. <laughs> and Don Quixote is beaten to a pulp, and a villager then he takes him home to, to recover. He a pulp a lot. <laughs> there follows the famous scene of the burning of the books where the priest and the barber, his friends, go through all these books. They know he's been driven mad by them. And name about 31 titles of current books, which have fa- a past verdict on them. One of them they find is by a guy called, hello, <laughs> it's called Cervantes. <laughs> and they say it's a very good book. Uh, the rest they throw into the, into the bin. And, and, and of a course, it's a, it's a satire, a parody on, on the Inquisition. Uh, not all of the books are destroyed. Um, and there is the idea that. Um, Don Quixote can be driven mad simply by reading some, <laughs> by reading something again that does not exist. So you you have this continual play on reality versus unreality. Um, and then so then he goes. goes on with the second Sally, but this time with Sancho Panza. Now the relationship between him, Sancho Panza, and he he changes throughout the books. That's one of the glories of the book. You know, it's not like stock characters are moved from one to the other and they never change. 
both these characters change. Which, of course, is modern and, again, comes to this idea of Don Quixote as one of the first models because novels because the characters change and develop and you see light and shade compared to the to the fables and the, the myths and the chivalric tales of the character is always the same. And I think one of the things in this is their relationship uh, blossoms into friendship and the power imbalance becomes much more even. In fact, near the end, Sancho Panza even holds him down and says, stop trying to beat me. Uh, and they get up and Quixote takes it. And, and, and Quixote identifies, uh, and Cervantes identifies uh, Quixote as, as the tall, skinny, romantic, uh, living with his head in the clouds. Sancho Panza is described as pretty short, a bit fat. He likes his food. He's earthy and engaged and much more real. But even then, he perhaps goes mad. Well, the whole thing is, though, uh, this, this story of the, the knight who's mad and the groom who, or the steward or whatever uh, who who's, seems mad at times or foolish, they end up making everyone around them look mean, stupid and small. And, and they are the wise, really and we should come to that. And they are the wise ones, and they're the kind ones. They are the kind, and ones. they're the generous ones, and they're the ones who administer justice. Well, when Panzer we'll finally gets his <laughs> island at the end, yes, he turns out to be a very good governor. Um, the second time they come out, uh, uh, Don Quixote goes out. It is with Panzer, and has promised him the governorship of an island, which Panzer <laughs> thinks, "All right, I'll do that." Uh, but but, uh, but uh, Panzer also suspects that that's. Not going to happen, but he does. That's it the only anyway. reason. Yeah, but he does it anyway. If I can interject with a question here that we've had from members, so uh, if why does Sancho Panza just go out oh, on these initially? Really initially, it is to one. I think he's a bit bored at home, and his wife gives him curry. Uh, but he wants to a little bit of adventure, but mostly he wants this governorship. He's obsessed with that. Obsessed with continually telling Don Quixote, "What about my governorship?" Um, but near the, in this part two, it develops into a genuine friendship, a really genuine friendship. And uh, luckily, of course, Panza, both uh, part one and part two, manages to find some money along the way, uh, but ends up uh, back home with his wife and so whatever. But to skip quickly through the plot. So the second Sally they go out, that lasts just three weeks and that comprises the rest of part one. Uh, that includes, of course, the famous tilting of the windmills where... Quixote thinks he sees giants, charges a windmill, his lance gets stuck in one of the sails, he's hoisted up and uh, falls down. Another time he charges a herd of sheep, the shepherds knock him down with stones. And again, I think there's only one victory he has in it in a fight with a Basque where he uh, thinks that uh, the servant is actually abducting the woman he's conducting along the road, challenges him to a duel. And just as both are about to hit each other, the story stops because the translation Runs out. According <laughs> to Cervantes, writing about himself. <laughs> yes. but so Cervantes only resumes it when he finds another uh, manuscript just, you, in a market. You mentioned the windmills, mm. and I don't want to demolish the windmills, but I yeah. will try to because the idea that the book is simply about a slightly crazy person um, who is attacking windmills and everyone knows their windmills and Sancho Panza sits their windmills and he does it anyway, I think is an absolute travesty and doesn't do justice to the book because we as the reader know they're only windmills, but perhaps they're not. Well, and, and, <laughs> and, and the idea that you can imagine that something isn't there is there and the idea that your life might be happier... Uh, changing your idea of, of what is real 
is a very deep point from the book and the idea and the concept that it's just about a, a guy charging windmills doesn't no, do justice. Well, but it, but the part one really establishes part two. Yeah, so I was going to say, so the windmills one, you've mentioned it a few times and we've had some questions about it, but why of all of the adventures Don Quixote has in this book is the windmills the one that sticks into the lexicon like I that? I think it's most easy to illustrate, etc., yeah. rather than a barber's basin or, uh, a the, Fuller's Mill or, or, yes, or he, puppets being attacked. Uh, a puppet show, uh, come, he thinks, uh, is what being shown a puppet show of Moors attacking. Uh, because don't forget, the, the Muslims had only a, a century ago been expelled from Spain. Um, converted Moors at the time that this book was being written were being told to leave Spain as well, uh, who'd converted to Christianity under force. And in fact, in the book is a very guarded, because the Inquisition exists, a very guarded plea for mercy for two characters in the book who are converted Moors. And he just says, look, we can really understand why you, they were evicted, but look, these are real Christians and a little bit of mercy, please. So throughout, it's, it's done things I, like I mean, it's a very powerful image, but it is nowhere near um, the, the most powerful imagery of the book. And it's not really even that key a scene because there are many similar scenes like it. Well, part one concludes after, uh, like I say, um, uh, Don Quixote has freed these galley slaves. They turn on him because they're not quite the noble people he imagined them to be. And there's a flee from the Holy Brotherhood who keeps peace and order. They go the into... public vigilantes. <laughs> mm, well, they're, they're agents of the king, but uh, they go into a wilderness, um, various adventures. Where, where have we heard that before? Well, that's true too. <laughs> There's, there's a lots of analogy, lots of things drawn from the Bible, from Dante, from Homer, from um, Virgil. Uh, this is a book on that basis. I mean, mo mo most editions have dozens and dozens of, of pages of endnotes yeah. uh, with the references. But again, y you can follow each one of those up or you can just read it exactly as it is. Well, to complete the plot, then at the end of part one, Quixote, uh, 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 like I say, this adventure only lasts three weeks, and the last week of it is spent lying locked up in an ox cart because his uh, friends, the barber and the uh, and the priest, have found him and uh, bring him back home to uh, recover. But part two then, it's, it's, Don Quixote then resumes his adventures with Sancho Panza. The world has heard of their fame and they... And some people think treat him as a celebrity. Others treat him as their excuse for a joke. A duke and a duchess uh, play all sorts of tricks on him for their amusement. Um, it starts with a high, you know, for him at any rate, uh, where um, well, it starts on a low. Actually, he meets some travelling actors. One hits his horse, Rosinante, which takes off, and he falls off again, and uh, it's just terrible. But he has a victory. He meets a knight who challenges him to a duel. Who would have thought? The knight happens to be, um, he doesn't know, a friend that thought, oh, look, I better go and pretend I'm a knight, challenge him to a duel. If he loses, I'll impose a penalty, go back to so home. So again, we have this realism versus um, something that's not real. We have, because of course, actors play someone they're not. And exactly as Andrew said, um, the knight is not a knight. No, the knight is his friend. Even though he's treated as a knight. Trouble is the knight's horse misbehaves. <laughs> And he loses the th uh, the, the joust, and so poor, uh, so uh, emboldened, uh, Don Quixote goes on. But but sorry, but that, then comes the crucial part of the just book. on that. That's part of the point too, which is Don Quixote thinks he's a knight. He's not a knight, but he becomes a knight through that victory. And also, everyone who greets him, he thinks, "My I have achieved my aim. I am the knight." Errant. So if you if you wish it hard enough, it will come true. 
But then comes a pivotal moment of the book, in the beginning of the decline, really, of Don Quixote, um, where his subconscious yeah. doubts really come through. He decides one of his adventures, he's always looking for adventures, is to go down at the end of a long rope, down, down, down. It's like going to the underworld, you know, where plenty of literary precedents for that, uh, Dante or whatever. Plato. Plato, Virgil. Cave. He goes down to a cave, the cave of Montesinos. And here is where his subcon- he falls into a deep sleep at the end of the rope. He reckons he's been there for three, uh, three days, he's only been there for an hour. And in his dream, this is where his subconscious doubts come through and where the book really starts becoming pre-Freud by, what, 400 <laughs> years nearly. And Freud was very influenced by this. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not, I don't doubt that for an instant. Um, he's greeted, this is grand, at the bottom of the cave in his dream, great heroes of chivalric literature greet him as a friend, as someone whose fame has come. Merlin is there and, and, uh, and, and, and Montesinos himself and his friend Durandante, whose heart he f- famously cut out to present to his, uh, as, as when his friend was dying in some grand, grand battle, he said, take my heart to my lover, which he did. But here is where reality cl- collides with, and his doubts about the chivalric literature and the, the Renaissance thing about reality. He thinks, well, he's, he's told, well, the heart to be actually go to the lover, it had to be dumped in salt because, God, it stank. So the doubts are starting to come. He meets Dulcinea, the woman of his dreams in the cave. She asks him for a loan, <laughs> a loan of, of just a f- six, six reals, nothing, and offers as a surety a petticoat, her petticoat. So there's a sexual thing, and unfortunately it only has four reales. Because so let, you could spend a few days unpacking that, as lots of Freudian psychoanalysts Correct. have. So it is not, not just arguably, and a lot has been written about what does this say about um, uh, Sanjo and his, uh, about um, Don Quixote and his sexual desires, but it's also a bit more than that, which is uh, his whole life, or his most recent life has been uh, in search of Dulcinea, he who doesn't fi- exist. Who doesn't exist. He finds her in his dream. But she, she uh, virtually offers herself to she him. She offers him. And he doesn't have that's enough right. money. That's right. Now, what, and so is this a recognition of, well, again, as people have said, is this the ultimate midlife crisis in Western literature? Is this the idea that you've got to a stage and you know you have failed? Is this a fear of succeeding? What happens? I think it's a fear of se- one thing. What is a he, fear of sex. A fear let's, of sex. Let's, but, we should go back but, and say. And again, what happens if he gets Dulcinea? And this is the point: he never gets he never Dulcinea. Does. And in fact, well, we'll leave that. Sorry, for the you end. know. What we but mean? he we should point out he is fifty years old, around fifty, which in that at that time is fairly old. Um, he's 50 years old, he hasn't married, he hasn't got children, he lives with a housekeeper and a niece. And there is that fear of sex. Uh, later on, he meets this, the Duke and Duchess I mentioned who, who treat him as an honoured guest, the great knight errant, but play all sorts of tricks um, the, you know, with people pretending to be what they're not. Um, they treat him like a fool, but he thinks he's being treated like a hero. But... Uh, they get one of their maids to pretend she's desperately in love with him. And twice she goes into his room to pretend she's in love with him. And both times he's so petrified he can't even speak to her and hides under the sheets. This is a guy who's in fear of sex. And I think that comes through in this uh, the cave of Montesinos. 
he also mentions, well, I don't think they actually go to the toilet down there. They don't seem to eat. Uh, he says that the lover of um, one of his great heroes there, uh, well, she doesn't seem very pretty, but he says, well, maybe that's because she's going through menopause, which is just extraordinary. If you think of chivalric literature, no women go through and, menopause there. And, and, <laughs> and No and, one looks ugly. <laughs> and again, you've got this realism. So in one of the great discussions with uh, Coyote and uh, Panjo saying, you're mad. No, I'm mad. No, you're mad. No, um, I'm not mad. You're mad. And then, of course, Sancho Panza famously says to Don Quixote, okay, I, I can tell you how we can work out who's mad and whether you're mad. Do you do number ones or number twos? And Don Quixote says, huh? And Sancho Panza says, well, if you're enchanted, uh, you probably wouldn't be doing number ones and number twos. So you've got this... You've got the reality crashing in upon your visions and your imagination. And, and, and talking now and of Cervantes, the, the writer, that's his big beef about literature and also about one of the people he mocks, one of the very fa most famous Spanish writer of his time, uh, Vega de Lopa. Uh, he, he attacks him for not having that sense of reality in his plays and all that. And that comes to the next character that they meet in their travel, Master Peter, who seems to be a parody of Vega de Lopa. He's got this puppet show and also a, um, a soothsaying monkey is, is actually a trickster. Master Peter is, in fact, one of the galley slaves in book one that he uh, freed uh, in disguise this time and travelling around the world. Again, he's in disguise. So what you think you see is not what is real. And this dream, the cave of Montesinos, where his dream of his knights clash and Dulcinea clash with the reality uh, Dulcinea appears to him as a peasant girl and ugly. His his great friends, the knights, talk, well, we did cut out the heart, but it rotted. Um, all that kind of stuff. And, and Dulcinea offering herself to him uh, for six reales, and luckily he only has four, so we can't do it. This really troubles him. And he asks this soothsaying monkey, was my dream at Montesinos real? And he also, later in the book, when he goes to Barcelona and, he, and some guy tricks him because he's heard of this madman who wants to fool him, he says, I have a little bust of this guy here and you can ask him a question and he'll respond. It's actually someone speaking through a speaking tube going up through this bus. And again he asks, was my dream at Montesinos real? Does Dulcinea exist? All his, his doubts come cascading through the rest. And then you think towards the end of the book, that he knows it was a dream, he, well, he wants it, it to was. be true, and then uh, Sancho has his own imaginary um, scenes that he communicates to to the readers and to the participants, and then um, halfway through the second part, um, Don Quixote says to Sancho, Sancho, since you want people to believe what you saw in the sky, i.e. an imagination, I want you to believe what I saw in the cave of Montesinos, I say no more. So reality... He wants, he's trying to bargain. He's, do you think he's trying to bargain? Well, I think but, it, I did see it as a kind of bargaining and you, you see the disillusionment But then do you think he believes he, it or not? I think he's starting to realise he can't keep it up. He can't keep it up. Um, but he, need, he needs to to keep his sanity. Well, you see... He needs to keep going. Well, you say that... But That's his purpose of life. It's getting, it's getting harder and harder for him. You, you, you're right in that. You're right in that. For example, um, after all this, where he's starting to worry, they, he charges 
some bulls, some people driving, uh, you know, bulls to, I don't know, to Festa or Fiesta or something. Uh, and once again, he falls over and the bulls trample him. Again. <laughs> trample him again. But unlike the other times, he does not try to explain it away. As Like whenever he had a reverse, he says, you know, when I was an enchanter. You know, someone appeared to me as this when they were really that. It was an enchanter. This time he doesn't do that. That's the true. reality is starting to encroach in ways that he... and he starts Which is to how the desperate. second part gets a bit sadder. It gets a bit sadder. He gets a bit desperate too because um, Sancho Panza was told by the Duke and Duchess they played a huge fake play in front of them of fake actors where Dulcinea, they put the two people on a, on a flying horse. They'd make them have blindfolds and tell them, you've been on a trip with a flying horse, you know, and... To bring back Dulcinea from this vision that he had of her as a peasant girl, Sancho Panza has to be flogged 3,300 times. And this starts, this alarms Sancho, of course. He doesn't want to be flogged 3,300 times. He keeps promising he will to bring Dulcinea back to life. He gets up to five. (laughs) (laughs) He's had enough. He's had enough. Um, But, um, of course, uh, Don Quixote is getting more and more desperate and he begs him to flog himself, begs him to get up to 3,300, see if Dulcinea is real or not, and even pays him to do that. Sancho Panza just flogs some trees instead while unseen, you know, Don Quixote counts the blows, but she never appears. And part of the point of um, Don Quixote and Sancho Panza uh, confronting the Duke and Duchess who play games on them, sophisticated, manipulative games, is that famously... Um, Sancho Panza does get to become a governor of an island. So it's a it's a uh, small town. Uh, or not, small an island. It's not an island. It's not an island. Far enough he, to he, figure and, it out. And, and again, he convinces himself it's an island, but it's it's a it's a town with citizens. Um, and the Duke and Duchess uh, uh, give the role of governor uh, or ruler to Sancho Panza, and uh, Panza is very successful he is wise he is just he is confronted with very difficult situations of he said she said uh situations of justice uh and he applies uh wisdom he applies a a measure of fairness that of course the duke and duchess do not display not only because um Cervantes is, is is making a point about the ruling class uh, but he's also making a point about who has wisdom and who has knowledge and and uh, Sancho does such a wonderful job uh, that later on uh, you have some of the citizens saying well he must have studied at Salamanca because only someone who has studied uh, could be as wise and as just as this. And the point is, in real terms, he does a very good job, but then he doesn't want to do it because it's all too hard. But it's interesting. That goes to that point we raised earlier, John, where, um, yes, uh, Don Quixote is mad, but, uh, of course, at most many times, he's only mad when it comes, as I say, uh, in, in, as Cervantes says in the book, you know, it's only when the topic goes to chivalry that his feet slip from the stirrups. Other times he's actually quite sane and he gives amazing discourses on writing, on poetry, on uh, the nature of love, on uh, all sorts of and, topics. And he is always trying to do the right thing, even though Correct. It, it's seldom 
comes off, he causes chaos, uh, he destroys people's uh, uh, possessions, he does all manner of things, but he's trying to do it for the right reasons. Well, as he once, as he says, um, uh, he says at one stage, always I always direct my attentions intentions to virtuous ends, which are to do good to all and evil to none. If the man who understands this and acts on this and desires this deserves to be called a fool, then say so, because people are calling him a fool. In the end, uh, and, and how cynical of that, how cynical is Cervantes to put that into Don Quixote's mouth, saying that only a madman could be virtuous, could be fair, Well, could be I just. don't think he says quite oh, that, but the point he, is his intentions always are honourable, those around him are calling him mad, and with good reason. They're not. I mean, some are. Uh, the priest so, and the barber, his friends, are steadfast throughout, and Sancho Panza. And I find that really interesting how the inversion happens. You mentioned Sancho Panza. Uh, he is mocked for being a fool now, and for at times believing that uh, his, his master is, is maybe not mad. Uh, he speaks in Proverbs, not in part one, interestingly. In part two, the character deepens. He always speaks in a forest of... Of of uh, proverbs, uh, which a fascinating one because uh, you give an insight into how many proverbs, even in Spain, four hundred years ago, are ones the sentiment exists today. And as Cervantes says a couple of times in the book, they are a summation of wisdom. He taught you know a sparrow in the hand is worth a vulture in the wing, or as we would say, a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. Birds of a feather um, stick together. Uh, one take is more worth more than two I give yous, you know, again, but, you know, what you've got. There's another great one. It doesn't matter if the stone hits the pitcher or the pitcher hits the stone. It will be bad for the pitcher. Well, you should mention that one. I underlined that one. It's a great I mean, one. But, but that's it, when it, it comes it, to being a governor. It's this horse lots of sense. wisdom. It's this horse sense and this desire to do good that makes Sancho Panza a fabulous judge. And, and Cervantes makes clear, like with the wisdom of Solomon in a way, uh, but he remains the peasant, whereas the Duke and Duchess act capriciously, at times cruelly, uh, making fun of their guests. Sancho Panza does good. Okay, so we have this central theme that's coming through here of creating a world around you that might be fictional and it might be outlandish, but it at least makes you happy. And uh, as you say, like this is the first modern novel. It's a very modern concept. I'm thinking of just films I've seen the last few weeks, like Lars and the Real Girl or Big Fish. Have you seen The Usual Suspects lately? Well, yeah. So Usual Suspects, the same thing. But like, you know, Lars and the Real Girl, he starts dating a, a plastic doll, but he just convinces himself it's his wife. Big Fish, he creates all these stories about his life because his life wasn't as amazing as he wanted it to be. How come this theme has carried on in humanity for 600 years? It's like, really what, what does that speak 400 to? years, yes. Well, well, yeah, 400 is, years, sorry. Well, if you think this, uh, from the Renaissance, it was an attack into, uh, in part, it, it developed into the Reformation too, into attack on faith a little bit, you know, um, that man has to search for a meaning to life. You couldn't just read it in, in religion. And you have to invent it yourself. Uh, man, it's, you it's, create, not, it, it, it's not God-given. And so before Don Quixote, um, you had your roles. They were stipulated by God. They were stipulated by class and status and culture. Now you are having to invent your own reality and your own role and your own purpose in life because it's not God-given anymore. There's so many, and, and you're, you're right, James, to, to mention you know, how many how popular this theme has been. You look, think of the play Equus as well. Remember that, a, a Peter Schaffer one where... 
a man imagines himself. What's it? I, I just know it involves a horse. Yeah, and then when he his madness is cured, his life is lacks color, and, and it's we see it so often. I mean, I, I didn't mention it just to have a sort of ideological jibe or a partisan jibe, but you know, Melbourne's anti-fascist movement, for instance, who are the fascists they condemn. They they see fascists in almost anyone and then attack them furiously, like fascists themselves. And yet there is something there. They've invented a monster that they go out to slay. If you told them, well, hang on, why don't we just have a talk um, and maybe you'll find these people are reasonable, they do not want that because it in, that kind of quixotic invention of enemies and invention of a great crusade and a, a blindness to the, con, the real consequence or is what gives their lives drama and meaning. Or imagining themselves as storming the beaches of Normandy, which is something that gets brought up with Antifa. Like, yeah, well, look at yes. these antifa activists. Tilting at a windmill. Well, literally, we are tilting at windmills. We are creating windmills all around the country in this fantastic idea that this will lower the world's temperature. Now, I don't, I, I don't want to turn suddenly all the readers off who uh, may, by inclination, be of the left and think, oh, what am I listening to now? I've, I've dipped into a well of poison. But there is that, that idea, a quixotic kind of crusade that gives life meaning. You know, now we see people thinking that uh, to abolish, uh, to get rid of plastic straws is going to... That gives real meaning. They crusade on this... And, and there's no San- the turtles. And, and there's no Sancho Panza in the modern world saying, the emperor has no clothes. You are wrong. This is madness. And yet with with Don Quixote, you think his aim... And he says it so often, I want to bring succor to widows and protect wives and uh, help the poor and the afflicted. He is on a crusade. And... The only real harm he does is to himself, to be honest. I mean, he caused a little bit of damage. Yes, the barber does lose a basin, but uh, luckily Cervantes goes back to the barber, he appears again, he gets some money back. But, you know, people actually seem in the book, and I think outside the book, to welcome Don Quixote. He's a man who has reinvented himself, tried to do something for good, and when that leaves his life, there is nothing more for him, but he dies in his bed sad well can i bring you back to something that you spoke to before which is so we've got don quixote and we're encouraged to laugh at him at some points when he's vomiting and mm. doing all this stuff but there's a lot of his travels which say that the real sickness isn't with don quixote it's with society around him from being so oh. corrupt like, oh, it's look that is so correct that you point that out because um there are a number of really int- this book is so rich uh, and like you said uh, th- that series of lectures 24 lectures of an hour each you can you, and that wouldn't even finish it in the book there are a number of satires on scholars on the priests uh, who advi- pretend to advise princes although they've only just fresh from college and know nothing how true that is but, now but, uh, the politi- political advisors and, and know it, nothing advise politicians and and we've we've used madness as as a shorthand uh, and there's been lots of academic discussion as to what, in fact, uh, Don Quixote was suffering from, if it was anything at all. I think it's a literary um, device. And it's exactly, it is a literary device. I think it's um, ridiculous and, to try and, and say, and, well, what and form the, of madness corresponds? And the idea of, and of course, at the time, uh, madness is conflated with uh, sickness and illness. And to come to your point, James, again, it is Cervantes pointing out that it's someone who is mad, someone who is sick, he was identifying the sickness around them. Except, of course, a lot of the, almost everyone he comes across, uh, they see that he's mad in terms of 
wanting to believe as a knight and some of the things he does in pursuit of that. But then he astonishes them repeatedly by his wisdom in all sorts of other things. And, and again humanity. and again, it's pointed out, my God, he speaks, and he, he speaks so beautifully, so in a courtly way. But the book's various satires on the Inquisition, on uh, clerics, like I say, on clerics, the nobility, on political advisors, on cities versus the country. So, of course, uh, Cervantes is turning his back on, on the, the pastoral ideal, uh, distinctions between different parts of Spain, city versus country, uh, males versus females, different class roles. On the expulsion there's, of the Moriscos. And, and you, again, you, you can see how so much has been written and talked about this because it is so rich and so multi-layered. I, I like the satire on, on, on Lope de Vega where uh, dressed up as uh, Master Peter on his puppet play, you know, where the two of them, so <laughs> Don Quixote, speaking for Cervantes, uh, complains that this puppet play has the Moors uh, ringing bells at the escape of one of their uh, Christian hostages. And uh, Don Quixote calls out, listen, the Moors don't have bells, they, they should be banging drums. This is exactly what's wrong with modern literature. <laughs> and then uh, Lope de Vega, well, he also he says, well, listen, uh, we've written, there are a thousand plays out there that have done such things and, and, and been successful. And, of course, Lope de Vega is one of them. <laughs> and the Lope de Vega did not appreciate that at all uh, in real life. And then the attack on the scholars, I think, is very funny. Yeah, the attack on the scholars. My favourite scene, well, there's the two favourite scenes. There's a cave of Montesinos, and of course, um, there's called what's the it's called the deceitful marriage. Comancho the rich and Basilio. One the of poor. the two novellas that are sort of inserted, and it is absolutely brilliant literature. Again, about someone being tricked into marriage and creating an illusion, manipulating reality, but then that reality becomes true because um, uh, someone is tricked into marriage, uh, but then they are married, and that marriage is then sustained on the basis of a trick. There's, again, all of these and points. And true love. And and. and True love, and earlier on the novel, there's the famous story about um, the two friends, and one is married, and he says to his friend, "I really need you to help me find out how much my life, my my wife really loves me. You have to try and seduce her uh, because I need to test her. Is her love real?" And you can imagine what happens, and it Terrible does happen. <laughs> but it's interesting; those are, there. There are two two short stories basically inserted in there. Um, and then there's the attack on the scholars, which again, there's contemporary re uh, relevance here about uh, trying to, you know, be a scholar by seeing what others don't, and actually turning out to be completely farcical. Uh, a scholar who comes with him on the uh, trip to uh, the cave of Montesinos. Because he's writing a new history of inventions. There's been a famous book of inventions. This guy's going to improve on it by thinking of other inventions. Who was the first man to catch a cold? <laughs> Who was the first man to scratch his head? Who was the first man to treat syphilis with ointments? I mean, absolutely idiotic things like that. But uh, honestly, this book is so, so rich. I just, I know people don't like. To th you know, it's not the favour anymore uh, in fashion anymore to read a thick book, the great baggy novel, particularly one from the time of Shakespeare. But I have to say, if you're thinking that way, you're mistaking this. This is a book of such unparalleled richness that the voice that comes through in a good translation is one that is like of a really erudite, funny, 
down-to-earth neighbour over your back and, fence. And you can't read any novel after reading Don Quixote in the same way. It is going back a bit to the beginning, to the origins of the modern novel, it is called, and I think appropriately modern novel. There's a wonderful biography on, on Cervantes basically entitled um, The Person Who Invented Fiction. Um, and... The, the devices, um, the processes, the, the, the styles of, of narration, um, playing with the, li- the, the reader um, are all found in this, in addition to some very nice storytelling. Well, and in the end, and probably finish on this, Cervantes gives two lectures through the words of Don Quixote. It turns out it's quite well read on literature. One of the rules that he puts in Don Quixote's mouth, he doesn't follow, and the second he does, which is quite ironic. I'm not sure he realises what he's done. Don Quixote says, in a critique of literature, fiction, and complaining about chivalric novels and also some of the ones of his time, he says, fictional tales must engage the minds of those who read them, and by restraining exaggeration, moderating impossibility, they enthrall the spirit and thereby astonish, captivate, delight and entertain. He also thinks they should teach. Well, in fact, Don Quixote does not restrain exaggeration and moderate impossibility. It's quite fantastic in some ways. Uh, so he doesn't follow his maxim, but that is his critique. Where he does follow the maxim, his own maxim is where he then later has Don Quixote saying... Uh, how you can write artful plays that are popular with the mob, which is a critique of Fega de Lope, where he says, uh, which means the fault lies not with the mob who demand nonsense, but with those who do not know how to produce anything else. Um, you can, he says, write and gain both renown and profits by being popular and yet wise. His novel is wise and popular. You can read it uh, for just, hey, look at this stupid guy tilting at windmills. But if you if you do that only, you do make my mistake where you read half of it and think, I've got to reread the first half because I didn't realise how deep and rich this really was. I think it probably does deserve to have won that poll as the greatest novel ever written. All right, brilliant. So that will uh, wrap up the conversation. So thank you to John and Andrew. And thank you so much to our listeners and subscribers out there. Uh, just one note. So if you are listening through iTunes, make sure you are leaving us a five-star review if you're enjoying the show. That's going to help other people come uh, come to the podcast. And uh, feel free to leave a comment, maybe uh, what you thought of the book, maybe something you want John and Andrew to discuss in a future episode. We will see you all in a fortnight.